The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. We're sitting in a large group of other attorneys and I tell someone it was it was it happened to be a white man, but it didn't necessarily have to be a white man because I've, I've heard it from other places. And he'll say, you know, what are you doing? And I tell him I'm on the executive committee. I've been a chair of the torts insurance and compensation law section. I've been this. I've been that. And I said that the next step for me is to run for New York State Bar Association president. This guy actually said, you like it was unfathomable. So I said, why not me? Hello, and welcome to The Hearing, a legal podcast where we have insightful conversations with interesting people connected to the law. I'm your host, Jennifer Thibodeau. And I'm your host, Lauren Sobel. Today, we sit down with someone we both admire and have had the privilege of seeing in action, Myrna Santiago. Myrna is a lawyer. She's a phenomenal speaker, a DEI expert, a self-described bias buster, and the founder of a nonprofit called Girls Rule the Law, which introduces underprivileged and underrepresented young women to the law. And as you can tell, we decided to do something a little bit different for this episode. Yes, we both know and admire Myrna, so we decided to change it up a bit. And as you mentioned, Lauren, Myrna wears a lot of hats. So when you hear her name, what is the first thing that comes to mind? So for me, it's the incredible smile that Myrna Mm. breaks out into whenever she talks about her girls. And I'm not talking about daughters. I am talking about (laughs) the students of Girls Rule the Law and all of Myrna's experience in growing the organization. Mm. Um, What was your favorite part of today's conversation, Jen? You know, it's really hard to pick, but I'd have to say was hearing her talk about and explain her catchphrase, show up, speak up, and woman up. I love that phrase too. And Myrna's um, explanation of how she came up with it during our conversation was really, really eye-opening. It will forever Mm. make me think twice about saying no to things. (laughs) I guess that's um, a bit of a teaser. Yeah, absolutely. Our audience will just have to keep listening to find out why. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Myrna Santiago. The Hearing. Welcome, Myrna, to the podcast. Jen and I are so excited to both be able to to sit down with you today. Um, Because this is a legal podcast, we we thought of you because obviously you're a lawyer um, and you have various connections to the law. But we want to hear from you. What makes you unique? Thank you. And I'm so happy to be here. So I think what makes me unique is just the the span of the different types of work that I've been doing over the past couple of years. I am in my 28th year of practice, but I don't really do a lot of actual legal practice anymore because I am the founder and CEO of a fast growing nonprofit. It's a 501c3 nonprofit called Girls Rule the Law. And at Girls Rule the Law, we try to um, introduce as many young ladies as possible to all aspects of the law, which includes, of course, the legal field, but also the legislature and the judiciary. And we have been fortunate that over the past five years that we've been in existence, we've grown exponentially. So we are doing a lot of uh, work and, you know, at Fordham Law School and just a whole bunch of other places where we are being welcomed now. So um, that, along with my diversity, equity and inclusion practice and some of my labor and employment work, keeps me very busy. 
So I have been to a lot of continuing legal education classes or CLEs over the past 20 years. And I honestly can't say I remember, you know, most of them or the speakers. But I had first met you after attending a CLE that you did for the New York City Bar Association on busting bias. And I can honestly, honestly say it was the most engaging and best CLE I have ever attended in 20 years. And I think Jen and and anyone else who's been lucky enough um, to have seen you in action agrees that you are an amazing speaker. And, you know, we've since had the pleasure of watching you present and speak numerous times in numerous capacities, including, as you mentioned, a DEI consultant. Um, You've been a panelist expert on DEI issues, and you were, you know, the former chair of the New York State Bar Association Diversity Committee, which, by the way, um, NISBA is the largest uh, state bar or one of the largest state bars in the U.S. Um, But at heart, you're, you're, you know, you describe yourself as a bias buster. So let's start with that. Tell us what that means to you and and why is it important to you? So the most obvious is what you've mentioned is that I am a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. So I consider that bias busting because when people ask me to either present or to go help them in their organizations as as part of um, my DEI consultancy, um, I help them to recognize where the bias is. And the hope is that we are going to bust that bias with the work that we're doing. So uh, and and in fact, that's in the title of a lot of my presentations. It'll be recognizing and interrupting bias, which is just another way of saying busting that bias. But in the literal sense, for me, I call myself a bias buster because I exist in so many places that women like me, I am a Black Hispanic woman who was born in another country, don't typically exist. So just walking into a space where I was the chair of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force at NISBA. I'm on the executive committee now for the New York State Bar Association for NISBA. I am this founder and CEO of an organization. Um, So I own my own business. I was a partner at a law firm. I mean, there's just so many things, so many places that I have existed as this woman in this skin and this lived experience that you would not expect to see me. So I, I see myself as a bias buster. And I think we we who know you certainly see you as a, as a bias buster as well. Um, can you give some examples of biases in the legal profession that maybe people often aren't aware of and how you teach people to overcome them? So Jennifer and I just um, taught on a panel for um, Defense Research Institute, which is leaders in um, you know, the insurance and and defense um, industry. And we spoke exactly about that, about some of the pervasive biases against women. One is that women are going to leave and therefore we shouldn't invest in making them partners or making them leaders within the firms and the organizations because they're going to leave and have children, for instance, or that certain groups of people, whether it's black people or, you know, women are not aggressive enough or they're not going to bring in business. And therefore, again, we're not going to invest in them because they're not going to be around for long or they're not going to be successful in that space. But the the most well-known um, study that has been done by the American Bar Association had to do with exactly that, where they had a legal memo and it was created for, for that sole purpose of conducting this study. And they had 22 errors in the legal memo and there were big errors and small errors. Uh, some of them were just like errors in the analysis, but there were also some errors in punctuation and grammar. And then they split up 
um, partners. They asked 60 partners from different law firms. Um, and it was different partners. It wasn't just white partners or white men. It was like women, black people, all kinds of partners in different law firms. And they split it up, that group of 60 into 30 and 30. And in one group of 30, they told them, um, we're going to give you a legal memo. It was written by a law student. We're not going to tell you a lot about this black man, right? Because we don't want to uh, bring up any sort of implicit biases that you may have, but we want you to review this memo. Then they went to the other 30 and they said the same thing, but they said it was a white man. They said, you know, we don't want to tell you anything much ex about this, you know, young white man, except, you know, that he's interested in working for your firm. We want you to review the memo. And what ended up happening across these, you know, partners was that the ones who thought that it was written by a black person just graded it, you know, they found almost every error. And of course, they graded it accordingly. They said they didn't want to hire that person. You know, the person just, you know, wasn't. And they used all kinds of stuff that we always hear, right? Oh, there's no attention to detail and, and they're not focused and, and all those words. And then the person when the 30 who thought it was written by a white man didn't find half the error. So they graded it accordingly on that basis. They were like, oh, you know, yeah, it's a little rough around the edges, but we would hire this person and, and help them, right? That's what we would do at a law firm. But it was the exact same memo. So that's the sort of bias that people walk in um, having to confront in the legal field. So Myrna, you mentioned that panel that we spoke on for DRI and something that you talked about there, and I know Lauren and I have heard you frequently present on, is the distinction between being a mentor, an ally, or a champion. I'd love to hear you talk about that now. And in doing so, share with us what you think the number one thing is that people can do to be an ally or a champion to a woman of color in the legal profession. Sure. So being an ally is sort of the minimum that you can be, right? And when I talk about being an ally, it's about using whatever privilege you have to help others or to be an upstander for other people. So for instance, the example that I always give is that when I am in leadership positions, a lot of times because I am in this lived experience, um, people will hear what I have to say and then disregard it. And then I have male allies who will come up and say the exact same thing, and then it will be heard, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes the, the male allies will recognize that. And when they are affirmed, oh, that's a great idea, they'll say, well, Mirna said this 15 minutes ago and no one said anything. That's the bare minimum, right? As an ally to use some of your privilege to help other people. When we're talking about champions and sponsors, is that's a, that's a step beyond. So being a champion or a sponsor is using your human capital, for instance, right? To uh, get help somebody get a job or to make an introduction or to help them get some business. So that's what I mean about champions and sponsors is going beyond the bare minimum which is being an upstander. Of course, we want people to be allies. The worst would be not to say anything, but that is just a little step beyond. So you said the worst would be not to, to say anything. I'm going to sort of um, ask you about the flip side so, so we can all learn from it. What is the most ignorant thing that you have ever heard a supposed ally in the legal profession say or do? And again, this is this is so we learn from it and don't do it. Yeah. Oh, I, I've had many experiences um, where I've, in, and it's just too many to, to get into. But one of the, the most ignorant things that happened to me maybe a month ago 
was um, I, my good friend, um, Sherry Lebenwallach, is the immediate past president of the New York State Bar Association. She's my exact same age, right? And we have very similar experiences. So, but she is uh, a white woman and she is obviously seen as presidential. So we're sitting in a, in a large group of other attorneys and I tell someone it was it was it happened to be a white man, but it didn't necessarily have to be a white man because I've I've heard it from other places. And he'll say, you know, what are you doing? And I tell him I'm on the executive committee. I've been a chair of the torts insurance and compensation law section. I've been this. I've been that. And I said, you know, Sherry keeps telling me that the next step for me is to run for New York State Bar Association president. And then he'll say, in this guy actually said, you. Like wow. it was mm. unfathomable. Mm. Wow. And so I stopped and, you know, again, I'm all about interrupting bias. So I said, why not me? Yeah. And he he was taken aback a little bit. And of course, you know, then he tried to make it a positive and say, oh, but you look so young. And I just said, you know, and I told him, I said, but I, we started off the conversation talking about the fact that Sherry and I are the exact same age. So why would you think I'm young and Sherry is somehow older or more, it just didn't, you know, but he, and then of course he was like kind of offended that I was offended. <laughs> it became a whole thing, but it's about that, that again, about the perception of, of women or people of color not being seen as presidential or leadership material or just somehow worthy. You know, Marina, when I hear you share about these studies and your personal experiences, it really leaves me wondering like what other advice do you have about anti-racism work that needs to be done in the law? One of the things that I keep telling people is that we cannot come from a place of being offended, right? Mm. And we really can't come from a place of offending. So one of the things that I always say, and you may have heard me say it when I present on diversity, equity, and inclusion is there's no difference between you and me except where I'm sitting or where I'm standing if it's in person. And the reason I say that is because we've all been socialized in ways that we have bias. None of us are hatchfully grown from eggs. So I have bias. And that's something that I add into all of my presentations is I'll give examples of my own bias so that people can realize, oh, okay, if she's admitting to it and she's done over a hundred presentations in diversity, equity, and inclusion has been doing this work since 2008, then I may be okay admitting that I too have bias and I can work on it. And that that's the starting point always, is, is always with let's not be defensive, let's not come from a place of being offended about being called out on our bias and maybe just lean back and say, oh my God, I shouldn't have said that. Or maybe I, there was a different way I could have worded that. Or maybe I am looking at this person as not leadership material. Why? Where have I gotten that from? So I think that's important is, is to start from that place of neutrality. So I'm, I'm going to not be neutral for a second and say, speaking of offended, um, we wanted to talk to you or, or ask you about the impact of the United States Supreme Court's decision in the SFFA versus Harvard case on, on your work. Um, so for listeners who may who may not be familiar, the case essentially found, and, and I'm oversimplifying a bit here, but that certain universities cannot consider an applicant's race in the admissions process because it violates um, United States equal protection laws. So we wanted to find out from you, what impact has this decision had or, or do you think will it have on your work? And do you address it when you when you speak on DEI issues? 
I have to tell you that when the decision came out, I was, you talk about coming from a place of not being offended. I was extremely offended (laughs) because to me, it just seems such a backward decision because we are still in a place where so few people of color are admitted into those hallowed halls of places like Harvard and the you know University of Virginia and and you know all of these these um, Ivy League schools are still having to consider race when admitting students because things have not changed right when you talk about segregation in the United States when you talk about uh, and, and legally mandated segregation in the United States right where black people had to sit in the back of the buses and live in their own communities when in 1965 when we said oh segregation is over right there's the equal rights act you can live wherever you want the systems were already locked into place so that people couldn't undo it it's not like the railroads were taken down that were separating the communities it's not like the highways were taken down it's not like they moved the schools and told people we're going to give you grants to move into other neighborhoods 72 percent of all neighborhoods in the united states are still segregated that's the that's the majority of communities so when it, the schools are the same, the funding systems didn't get changed. So it was still based on tax revenue. I mean, nothing changed in 1965 other than you can sit in the front of the bus now. You can apply for certain jobs. So to say, hey, you know, all these years later, because that's what the Supreme Court basically said, you know, the conditions that existed in 1965 are not there now. Therefore, we don't need to have affirmative action to me, it's just a crock of whatever, right? It just didn't make any sense to me. So coming from that um, and the backlash, of course, that we've had all of these, you know, in 2020, we had George Floyd and everyone was putting out statements and, and everyone was saying we need to be mindful of this stuff. And then, of course, came that backlash in 2021, 2022, where people all of a sudden were saying, hey, we're being made to feel guilty because we're X, Y and Z, and therefore we're not going to do this anymore. And that is where the main impact on my work has been where even within organizations that want to implement diversity efforts and put in diversity plans, they're getting backlash from people within the organization who are saying, well, I'm not going to attend uh, the seminar that you put on. I'm not going to participate in any of the town halls because you know that's woke and I don't want to be woke anymore. Right? So that was the real impact. In terms of the, the case from the Supreme Court, the impact is going to be on the kids especially in some of my programs, they're not going to be able to have their lived experiences considered, especially when you talk about here in the United States where uh, being of color is almost synonymous with being poor, with, be, with being raised in, in, on public assistance and in public housing, right? So it's synonymous. So we're going to have to look to these universities to try to find other ways to bring these kids into the fold that's not going to rely on race. When you, you you mentioned before there there was a backlash in in sort of uh, around 2021 um, about feeling guilty. Can you sort of elaborate on on that a little bit and and whether you think the Supreme Court decision um, will sort of squelch, for lack of a better word, corporate DEI programs because of that? Well, one of the things that we did at the New York State Bar Association and I. 
I think they did a really good job with that is that immediately, and it was even before the decision came out because we kind of saw that it was going to come out that way based on the other decisions that this Supreme Court has been issuing, is that the New York State Bar Association put together a task force on affirmative action um, headed by Jay Johnson at Paul, Paul Weiss. And they, they made it clear to all of the practitioners, you know, at um, New York State Bar Association and the law firms that this has to do with government funding. So any school that receives federal funding, whether it's in the form of TAL, TAP or Pell grants or, or um, student loans, right, any sort of federal funding, that's what it applies to. It does not apply to private, fully private institutions that don't accept any federal funding. It does not apply to uh, to uh, companies or law firms. But of course, having an, an institution like the Supreme Court say schools can't consider race as if it's a bad thing, right? Um, really does send a message to other organizations and companies that they also should not be considering race. And now a lot of companies are cutting back on their DEI initiatives. Um, Some of the chief diversity officers were let go or absorbed into other roles within firms and and companies. So it it is having an impact. So Mirna, I want to change gears just a little bit because you've talked about all of the different rooms that you've been in busting biases as a lawyer, you know, that you've founded a nonprofit and you've practiced law at a firm, including as a partner, you've been an attorney in house, but we'd really love to hear why you went to law school and decided to become a lawyer. My father who recently passed away. So God rest his soul used to say that there was, and I I really have no idea where he got this from, because this is a man who was born in 1940 in Honduras as part of a marginalized group within Honduras, being from African, of African descent. Um, And he always said, I don't believe in discrimination. I don't believe in racism, um, which of course is misguided, but still he always said that. He said, I don't believe in discrimination. I don't believe in racism. So if you're coming to me to make an excuse and say, I didn't pass this class because, you know, the teacher hated me because I was black or, you know, this guy did something to me because I'm a woman. He's like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear any excuses. And that and when we came to the United States, I came when I was six years old um, with my siblings. He said, I want you to aim at the top of every field. So one sister, he said, I want you to be a journalist. One sister, he says, I want you to be a doctor. You know, he wants he wanted my brother to be an engineer. He wanted me to be a lawyer. And he was just drumming it into our heads all the time. And of course, you know, as a six or seven year old, I didn't know what it was to be a lawyer. But for me, because he had sort of um, incepted that idea in my head of being a lawyer, I, it started to become interesting to me. And of course, growing up in the projects where I did grow up and seeing how the interactions were with the with justice, with you know, law enforcement, police officers and courts and that sort of thing, it made me want to be a lawyer because I just felt powerless. Um, seeing how the police would would 
interact with my dad, for instance, as soon as he opened his mouth um, and he had this really heavy accent and he's a black man and um, in a crappy car, right, in, in dirty mechanics clothing, and then they would just treat him like garbage. And I always said to myself, well, you know, I am not going to be that. I'm, I'm not going to be treated like garbage. I'm not going to treat anybody like garbage, but I'm going to be in a position to speak out against certain of these things and these injustices and, and all the things that I'm seeing, and I'm going to make change. And that was really the impetus for me to become a lawyer, um, not having seen any lawyers in my family, not having seen anybody who even graduated high school in my family at that point. So it that that was for me what made me want to be a lawyer, but it started with my dad. Really interesting to hear that about your dad and his experience as well. In your response there, I, I noticed you said you you wanted to be someone who could speak out, and you've been known to say, "Show up, speak up, and woman up," and that has always stuck with me. So, can you talk a little bit about what it actually means to show up, speak up, and woman up? Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's that's sort of my catchphrase. And I tell my my girls that all the time in my program, because a lot of times girls are not encouraged to say yes to opportunities. And I saw that growing up also with my mother. So my mother was when we first got here, she was a, uh, a cleaning lady. She was a matron in a loft, in a, in a theater um, cleaning, and then she cleaned houses to make money on the side. And then she decided that she wanted to go to school and learn how to be a secretary. So she did that. So she had like two or three jobs going to school. I mean, my mother did a lot. But one of the things that I always saw with my mother is that she never said yes. So when she was working at this theater and she was a cleaning lady, she was scrubbing toilets in the theater. She did such a good job that her bosses were like, let's put you behind the concession stand or let's you know train you up to be manager and my mother always said no and she said oh i don't want to be responsible or i don't want you know i don't want money to go missing and like she always jumped to the reasons why it would be a no for her so i learned to teach myself to say yes so that when I was offered an opportunity at 14, I, I signed up for the summer youth employment program and they said, okay, you can pick garbage, right? Like with the little sticks in the park with the other kids, but it's, it's no responsibility. Or you could come work at, I think it was Bronx Lebanon Hospital at that time in the office where you're working one-on-one -on -one with uh, administrative uh, leaders and what have you, leadership. And, but you'll, you're going to learn stuff, but it's also going to be more responsibility you're going to have deliverables. And I said, yes. Right. And, and that started me off sort mm -hmm. of like, oh, I can do something different. So for me, I always tell my girls, I said, you have to first say yes. But if you're going to say yes to an opportunity, you also have to show up. Right. And if you're going to show up, you just can't be a lump on a log. You have to speak up. You have to be seen. You have to be heard. And then you have to woman up. You have to provide those deliverables because it makes no sense for you to say, yes, I'm going to accept this opportunity and then not do the work. So that's what it means. It's, you know, say yes first, but then show up, speak up and woman up. The hearing. You're an attorney with a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game with superior resources, serious preparation and total confidence. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. 
For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. You just mentioned your girls, and uh, that leads me to my next question. So your girls are um, not daughters by blood necessarily, um, but I think you're referring to the nonprofit that you founded and you mentioned before, Girls Rule the Law. So can you talk to us, and and, um, I know uh, our audience can't see you, but every time we talk about Girls Rule the Law, the smile on your face just says it all. So tell us, what is the organization's mission and and what do you do, you know, as the founder of the organization? So our mission and vision is to create a pipeline into the law. So that means the legal field, the legislature and the judiciary, because again, it bears repeating, we are still underrepresented. Women are still underrepresented, even though we're going in equal numbers into law schools, we're coming out and we're already losing 20%. 50% of women go into law schools, but only 30% go into practicing the law or doing things that are law related. So that's important. That's part of the mission and the vision is to reinforce that pipeline and letting girls know, okay, you can go to law school, but also do have an impact in, in the law. And don't decide that I'm, okay, I have this degree, but I'm going to go teach. I have a degree, but I'm going to, you know, do something else with it because I don't feel like I belong in the law. So the mission and the vision is to teach the girls the skills that they need to acculturate into the law. And by that, we do all kinds of programming. We have mentorships, opportunities. We have speed mentoring. We have lunch and learns. Um, and by lunch and learns, as we go into law firms, into the courts, and just showing the girls what is possible to do with a law degree. This is what you can do in the legal field. And me, as the founder and the CEO, I mean, I have a team now, but at the beginning, it was really just me planning the programs, going into schools, teaching and conceptualizing mock trial and debate at the schools, um, doing the youth conferences and inviting people, reaching out to people and saying, hey, come to our, our youth conference and speak to the girls, be the keynote or come and do the, can we do this lunch and learn? Um, so as the the founder and the CEO, it's it, the organization is, is in my blood at this point and I just do everything. I And I joke and I say, I'm the CEO, I'm the founder, I'm the secretary, I'm the janitor. I do everything <laughs> to make sure that the organization is successful. You are the woman who rules the law, in other words. Oh, I like that, Lauren. <laughs> well, Mirna, we have to say congratulations about the organization because you mentioned its exponential growth earlier and how it is just absolutely fast growing. So can you tell us a little bit about the organization's uh, growth and everything that you've achieved since you've founded it? So when we first started, in my mind, it was about youth conferences. I wanted to have hundreds of girls in one space uh, being mentored by hundreds of women. I wanted to invite women in the law and, and luminaries within the field to come and show the girls what could be possible. I always say, if you can see it, you can be it. Um, and that's for a lot of the girls that we deal with, whether it's in um, communities of color that are underfunded, underprivileged, underrepresented, they don't see it. So they'll turn on their TV and yes, they'll see a Hillary Clinton or they'll see someone like that, but they don't see people who look like them in positions of power. So I, that's what I was trying to do is to invite those types of women into those spaces with the girls. 
So that was the, that was sort of my mind uh, in my mind when I first created the organization. But once we got going, I realized that there was more of a need. So I started to do a mock trial program at a school in the Bronx. And when I told the the girls we need to dress up for court and explain, and I was very good at explaining to them. I said, when you go to court, you show respect by wearing professional wear. It's almost like a uniform, right? You wouldn't go into uh, you wouldn't go play soccer in a suit, so you won't go into court in sweatpants or sneakers. And they got it. So we showed up and I'm, I'm in court and I'm waiting for my girls to come in so that we can compete. And they showed up in almost like these quinceañera dresses. Like, <laughs> like that was the best outfit that they had. So I'm sitting there and I'm, and of course I'm like, oh my God, of course. Right. I, I, I had forgotten what it was like to grow up in certain communities and not have money to go out and buy new outfits for court. Um, you're going to find the best thing in your closet. So I started this whole The Law Suits You program within Girls Rule the Law, where I started reaching out to my network and saying, do you have gently used suits and shoes and, and shells for my girls when they compete? And there has been that overwhelming support from the legal community, making sure the girls have that. And again, doing the mock trial, doing the debate. Um, I do, I'm doing lunch and learns. I'm going, last year we did a uh, careers in the court in the Bronx courthouse where the, we had 100 girls and they interacted with Judge Doris Gonzalez, who's the, the presiding judge in the Bronx. The Bronx District Attorney, Darcel Clark, was there. The Bronx Borough President, Vanessa Gibson, was there. I mean, the, all of these women came out to support these girls. And it was great to see uh, all of these women and 100 girls. Our youth conference had 200 girls at Fordham Law School. Um, and we had so many sponsorships from the New York Bar Foundation to Pepsi. Pepsi actually now is interested in Girls with the Law, and they gave us a sponsorship for, for our youth conference. We are expanding. So this year, in 2024, come going into 2024, we used to be mostly in New York City. So it was New York City and, and Harlem and Manhattan and the Bronx. And we're doing a youth conference at Syracuse Law School. So we're moving upstate. And then in, later in the year, we want to do one at Buffalo Law School. And so that's it's we're growing and it's great and we're reaching out and we we started from regional and now we're going to go statewide. Um, in three years, we want to go national and five years, we want to be global. That's really, really incredible. So what results are you the most proud of? Have you had students now at this point who have graduated from the program and are about to graduate college pre-law? Kind of where, where, where are they? What are you the most proud of? So we are only five years in, so we haven't had any students graduate from law school yet. But what I'm really proud of is our mentoring and internship program. And what we're starting to get is because we are we have credibility now in the industry that we actually have judges reaching out to us and saying, send us some of your girls so that we can offer them internships. Last year, we had um, students working at law firms that we had placed. And, and these are young girls. They're, they're not like college students. These are high school girls, so 15, 16, 17 years old, who are in the law firms and getting skills that they need to put on their resume and also, you know, hopefully get into college and law school. So that's really what I'm proud of. It's sort of the credibility that we're building within the industry so that we can create these opportunities for our girls. Well, the impact is absolutely tremendous. So we have to ask you to tell us how can people support Girls Rule the Law and where can they go to find out more information about the organization? 
So the website is always the go-to. So www.girlsrulethelaw.org is the first thing. Of course, we always need donations. We need donations of these of uh, the professional wear for the young ladies, but also donations to put on programs. Um, whenever we get sponsors, it's always a cause for rejoicing because we go from event to event and we're always like, oh my God, we're, we're, you know, how are we going to pay for this? Um, and it's always the board, some of the board members and myself who end up taking money out of pocket to pay for it. So the, the more sponsors we get, the more donations we get, the more opportunities we can provide for our young ladies. So that's that's always important. But go on the website, um, you know, for your listeners, go on the website and see what we do. And hopefully you will find it in your heart to support us in doing more in the coming years. And really, thank you, Mirna. It's such an incredible organization. Um, and, and you know, the, the legal community at large is very, very lucky to have you. So So thank you. Um, before we let you go, we wanted to borrow a trick from up your sleeve um, that you like to ask at your presentations, which is, can you share something that friends and family know about you, but that others might be surprised to know about you? Sure. Oh, my God. I have so many things. Like, my friends and family know that I love dancing. So I'm I'm a mm. big Zumba head. I'm always dancing around in my house. Um, and I also love to sing. Whether I'm actually good at it or not is up for debate, but I do love to sing. So my family and I, since 1989, I'm dating myself, but since 1989, every New Year's Day, my entire expanded family, cousins, aunts, I mean, everybody shows up at my parents' house. Uh, now it's my mother's house. And we do karaoke the whole day. I mean, hours and hours of karaoke wow. and we'll do choreography. And it's it's just a fun time. And, you know, so, like I said, some people sing better than others. So that's always really funny. But that's, you know, something about me that most people don't know. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Mirna, for, for joining us today. It was so amazing to have you on. And, and just, again, I wish our listeners could could see you and, and see the <laughs> smile on your face when you talk about what you're so clearly passionate about. So thank Good. you. Thank you. The Hearing. Thanks so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to and consider giving the podcast a five-star review. It really helps other like-minded people find our podcast. We would also love to hear your thoughts, feedback, and ideas for future guests. So please drop us a line at thehearing at tr.com. That's thehearing at tr.com. Until next time. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash thehearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.